0: Well, good morning. My name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, my privilege to welcome you on a a special day. We don't do this every Sunday. Um, Well, we do this every Sunday. We worship every Sunday, and so we're worshiping the same God, just doing it a little bit differently today. Uh, We do this on October 31st because it was on October 31st or near October 31st. It was on October 31st that Martin Luther first nailed his 95 theses to the church door of Wittenberg, Germany, uh, and that launched the Protestant Reformation. So we are celebrating our German heritage. Any Germans out there? So yes, yes, thank you. Uh, we get this from you. Uh, of course, the uh, Reformation spread like a beautiful contagion uh, all through Europe and throughout the world and uh, ended up in Scotland through John Knox, which is the beginning of the, the Presbyterian Church. And So that's why we are celebrating our, our Scottish heritage, uh, which is kind of a funny thing that we're doing, celebrating the Scottish heritage, because we're doing it in a way that I'm pretty sure Scottish forefathers would not like. Sorry, guys, they would not have liked you guys at all. Uh, we love you, though, so, so thank you for being here. Uh, bagpipes, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have liked that either uh, in, the, in the worship service, but we do uh, like to remember our Scottish heritage. Then, uh, of course, the Reformation eventually, uh, after the United States was founded by many who were impacted by the Reformation, came here. So we sing Amazing Grace, which is an English hymn that we sing to an American tune. And uh, so we're just kind of... Almost multicultural, right, as we uh, we celebrate the Reformation today. And um, generally, uh, we also like to remember uh, someone from church history that impacted us. Because the church didn't start in 2019. It didn't start in 1950. Uh, it has been going on for, for hundreds of years. And we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. So, even as we mention our German and our Scottish heritage, you also want to look today at our English one by looking at a little known figure, uh, one of the early English martyrs, a man by the name of John Bradford. Have you ever heard the expression, uh, there, but by the grace of God go I? Uh, It's a beautiful expression. It's uh, when you see someone who's uh, in dire straits, probably because of something they have done uh, that was foolish or sinful, and you look at them, and uh, instead of looking at them on judgment, you're going, you know, I could have done that. There, but by the grace of God go I. I could easily have done that. Well, that uh, all began with a man named John Bradford. He was the first one reportedly to have said that. It was on an occasion he saw a a criminal being led to execution, and he looked and he saw the criminal, and he said, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. Uh, Whenever he saw someone who was drunk, he said, Lord, I'm drunk in my heart. Whenever anyone would cuss, he would say, Lord, I know I've cussed in my heart. He was a man sensitive to his own sinfulness and his own need for a savior. Ironically, Bradford himself would one day be led to the burning of the stake. Also, you know, in the 1540s, the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation begins basically in 1517 with Luther in Germany. 1540s, it begins to spread throughout uh, Europe and into England. And uh, the major tenet of the Reformation was that we cannot earn God's approval through our good works. We can only receive God's love by faith as a gift. Uh, That means that we are are saved, as we would say, by, by grace alone. And uh, it's a gift. And we receive this gift not by doing good works, not by going to church, not by religious activity. We receive this gift uh, simply by putting our trust in Jesus. And so, therefore, salvation is by faith alone. So faith is believing that Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, has done everything necessary for our salvation. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, well, when Bradford first heard this news about this amazing grace, before this he thought he had to do something to earn God's favor, and he was, uh, when he first heard this, it changed his life. He was, he was studying to be a lawyer, and he repented of that. Uh, just kidding. Nothing wrong with being a lawyer. Uh, and, um, but he did change course, and uh, he changed course and decided to study theology instead and, uh, and so that all happened in about 1548, and he earned his master's degree. And so in 1551, he becomes a professor and then later becomes chaplain for King Edward VI. Uh, to remind you a bit of your, your history. Edward VI was the first Protestant king, uh, a truly Protestant king in England. And so he became one of Edward's chaplains. But Edward died, unfortunately, and, uh, and so in 1551, Mary Tudor became Queen of England. Mary is better known as Bloody Mary because Mary began to persecute and to uh, put to death many of those who were preaching the gospel. And so Bradford was arrested. Uh, He was arrested arrested for for, uh, promoting a riot, which he was not doing. He was arrested for preaching the gospel, which, of course, causes riotous joy among us, right? And so he's arrested for preaching the gospel. He's put into London Tower, and he's there, and he forms a a Bible study with some other people who would be martyrs as well, Latimer, Ridley, and some others, and uh, I believe Pranmer was one of those. And he's there in the Tower of London, uh, but uh, he was sentenced to death, And on July 1st, he was taken to Newgate Prison to be burned at the stake. To honor the occasion, a woman made him a shirt. It was called a shirt of flames. You get the purpose of the shirt. You wear the shirt when you go to the flames. And the shirt was designed like a wedding shirt. So today, it would be the equivalent of a, of a tuxedo that a man might wear to his own wedding. And she gave him this shirt to wear to his execution because he was going to the wedding of the lamb. As part of the church, as part of the bride of Christ, his his execution day was his wedding day. And they took him out and they, they chained him to the stake and they chained him next to another man named John Leaf. And he turns to Leaf and he says, "'Be of good comfort, brother, "'for we shall have a merry supper "'with the Lord this night.'" They said that when the flames were coming, he he reacted as if it was simply the breeze of a hot summer gale. Now, we know the flames hurt. We don't want to over-romanticize being burned at the stake. But the question still remains, how could someone approach the flames, something that would be so incredibly painful, like it's his wedding day? How could he do so with joyful anticipation, you know, John Bradford, by the way, is not an outlier. Uh, the, the many have said that the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's not like martyrdom is simply something of the past, uh, not something of simply of history. According to missiologists and historians, more people died for their faith in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. Even today, people are being put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, why are people willing to die for this? Uh, why would you endure things like this? And that's the question we are looking at in the book of Hebrews this morning. We're asking the question, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth suffering for? Is Jesus worth dying for? Is Jesus, is Jesus worth being thought you're a fool? Is Jesus worth people thinking you're crazy? Is Jesus worth people thinking that you have no sense at all? Is Jesus worth being ostracized by your community? Is Jesus worth that? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers that question. In answering that question, the first thing he tells us in the, the passage we just read, in verse 12, chapter 12, one through three, he says, to answer this question, first look back, uh, excuse me, look ahead. Look ahead. Look ahead at those who've gone before. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to uh, Jewish Christians. These are, are Jewish people who have uh, determined to follow Jesus. They're now being persecuted for their faith. Their, their persecution will, has not yet reached the point where they're going to be martyred. That will happen later on, but not yet at this point. Instead, they're being ostracized by the community. They cannot shop. They cannot do business. Uh, they're being excluded, probably suffering vandalism. They're suffering intense persecution. And so what these Jewish Christians were thinking is thinking, you know, my life was better before I started following Jesus. This is not my best life now. Uh, my life was better before. And and so, why can't I just go back to the way things were before and just abandon Jesus, return to my old faith, and then things will get better? And the truth is, if they had done that, things would have gotten better. But the writer of Hebrews writes to them this letter, and it's what it is It's, it's a long letter saying, Here's why you should not abandon Jesus. Jesus is better. That's the theme all the way through. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is a better high priest. Over and over, Jesus is better. And then we get to this uh, chapter, chapter uh, 11 and chapter 12. And here in this chapter, the writer compares the life of faith to a race. And he says, this is no 100-meter dash. Uh, It's a marathon. It's a long race. And and if you've ever uh, participated in, in, a, uh, in an endurance sport like a, a long running race, a marathon, or something of that sort, uh, you know that um, uh, the, the, the trophy is simply winning. Uh, it's winning, the, the trophy is simply finishing. I mean, if you finish, that's an accomplishment. If you're one of those people uh, who's actually done the Pikes Peak Marathon, two things. One is, have you seen a psychologist? There, there are issues here uh, that you, why you would do that. But, but the other thing is, that's, that's an accomplishment. I mean, I don't care how long it took you. If you did that, that's an amazing thing. Uh, it, it's an accomplishment. And so, you know, you, you don't have the same sort of issue uh, with a uh, 100-meter with 100, 100 dash. Nobody gets like through, a, you know, running the 100-yard dash and a 50-yard line says, I just don't know if I can make it you know, I just don't know if I can keep going. Uh, but that happens in a, in a race. And so uh, if you run to the top of Pikes Peak and back, you, you, get a, you get a trophy. I don't know if you get a trophy. Well, today you get a trophy even if you finish the 100-meter dash, but that's a different problem. Um, but you've earned a trophy if you get to the Pikes Peak and back. So the writer of Hebrews sends them this letter to Christians who are discouraged, and he tells them why they should keep going. And in chapter 11, he points them back to the people who've already run the race. He says, "So look at these, and he calls them a, a, a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, chapter 11 has oftentimes been referred to the, as the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame of the Faithful, and it, it recounts heroes who've gone before, you know, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, others, and all of these people suffered greatly. All of these people ran the race for the long haul uh, and, and, and endured great hardship and obstacles. Some of these heroes of the faith did not always start well. Sometimes they stumbled on the race, many of them did, uh, and fell down. But in the end, they all kept running and they finished well. They've gone ahead and they're waiting at the finish line. And it's only together with us Uh, that they get the prize. So the writer of Hebrews calls them a great cloud of witnesses. And the idea is not that they're they're fans in the stands cheering us on. It's not like they're there saying, go, go, go. The idea is that we look ahead to them. Uh, The idea of a cloud of witnesses, a cloud in the ancient literature referred to a large group of people, uh, is that we look ahead to them and say, they made it. We're looking at them. They're at the finish line. They made it and we just look and say, if they made it, we can make it too. Uh, it gives us that encouragement for the journey. You know, reading their stories uh, and, and hearing how they, they endured is inspiring to us. It's inspiring to us. know, a number of years ago, Tricia and I were part of a, a, a small group to start a new church in, in Florida, and um, you know, starting a new church is, is, is like starting a new business. It's a very risky venture. You don't know if it's going to work or not. I've always said if I knew then what I know now, I never would have done it. I would have been too, too afraid. And, um, and so, but we got going, and the church uh, after a year looked like it was going to make it. And I was talking to a friend of mine. He goes, you know, I'm thinking about starting a, a church in Florida. And he says, you know, he said, well, if Bates can do it, I know I can. And, uh, you know, his logic was not wrong, right? His logic was not wrong. I mean, if God can use me and God can use anyone, and, and that was his logic. And, and so we look ahead and say, you know, if God can see these people through, I mean, if you read about those uh, the people in Hebrews chapter 11, and we, you lift them up as heroes, but then you go back and read their stories, they, they're a bumbling group. I mean, Abraham... Abraham, do you remember how he, he sold out his wife just to save his own skin? Not just once, but twice. If God can use Abraham, he can use you. You haven't sold your wife, I hope, right? I mean, you, know, you, you look at others. David you know, commits adultery. We, I mean, on and on. Jacob, the liar. I mean, if God can use these people, then God can use us and he can persevere. So, so we look at them and say, God helped them. And they made it through. They they've received the crown already, and God has given them the crown. They have the trophy already. This is the same sort of motivation that that coaches will use with their players. If a if a coach has uh, got a team and he's got a former player that's won a national championship, let's say you know, maybe they've won one like Alabama or something, and then um, uh, so they he would bring in a former player who's at national championship, and the player walks in, and what's the player do? He just kind of shows off his little ring and lets the other players see it, and they kind of pass it around. And what's the message the coach is sending? That ring can be yours. That ring can be yours. So we look at the cloud of witnesses. The difference is the coach is saying to the players, if you work hard and do your best, you will make it to the end. What God is saying to us, though, is if you just trust me, I'll carry you to the end. It's not you who has the endurance I am the one who will sustain you. It is God's faithfulness, not ours, that will see us through. The question is, will we trust God to be faithful? Do you believe he really will see you through to the end? So we, so we look ahead at those who have gone ahead. Secondly, we look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. In verse 2, he tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That word founder literally means the person who goes first on the path. You know, how many of you have, have been up Bar Trail at all? How many of you, you know, thought that was fun? Okay, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you people. It's a, I, I did it once, and I said I would never, ever do that again. And when I did it the second time, I meant it. Uh, I, the, the, just the, the, the pain of that. Now, you think about how hard that is. How hard was it for Fred Barr? Fred Barr went first. Fred Barr paved the trail. Fred Barr got the rocks out of the way. He picked the best route. You think it's hard for you, it is easier for you because Fred Barr went ahead on the trail. And what it's saying is Jesus did this for us. Yeah, yeah, the trail's hard, but it's nothing like what Jesus did. We are not suffering to the point where Jesus suffered. Yes, we're called to endure, but he's already smoothed the path. It is a a journey of endurance, but he he has paved the way for us. And so you think about what Jesus did in blazing the trail. You think that, that, and you begin to understand that he understands your pain. He understands your hardship. He knows how difficult it is. No one understands better. He became a man like us, to suffer like us. He healed the sick, and what happened? They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. He cast out demons, and they said he was demon-possessed. They lied about him. They convicted him without evidence. They nailed him to a cross, and while he was dying, they laughed at him. And then on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seemed that even the Father had turned his back on him. G.K. Chesterton said of that moment, that is the moment that God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. Jesus, who is God, for a moment, lost his faith in God, it seemed. When Jesus calls us to follow him, it is a call that involves hardship and sacrifice. He's not oblivious to our pain, but he's gone on the journey ahead. He is the founder of our faith. He's the trailblazer, and he comes and he says, follow me. But he's just not only the founder, the writer of Hebrews also says he's the perfecter of our faith. That is, he's the one who brings it to completion. Our salvation depends on Jesus from beginning to end. The reason we follow after Jesus is not that we look at the mountain and say, I can do that. The reason we look to the mountain and say, I can do that is saying Jesus, I'm gonna follow you up that mountain because I'm counting on you to carry me to the top. I am not confident in my ability, I am confident in your ability. You are the founder, I follow you, but you're the perfecter, you're the one who brings it to completion. Uh, he will see us through. And here's the essence of why the Protestant Reformation is so important and why it began. It's the whole point of what we're, why we're doing this this Sunday. The church at the time of the Reformation was teaching that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, that God forgives those who confess their sins, and believes that Jesus died for their sins. So, so what they're saying is that, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But there's a key word that is missing in each of those statements, They're saying we're saved by faith, but not necessarily faith alone, and by grace, but not necessarily grace alone, and in Christ, but not necessarily Christ alone. And it's that word alone that changes the whole gospel message. Uh, It's it's the key to these things. So what they're saying is Jesus did most things necessary for our salvation. Uh, However, uh, they they said that if if your good works were not more than your bad works, and, and so you put your faith in Jesus, you're baptized, but then if you commit certain sins called venial sins, uh, then, then what will happen is you'll go to a place called purgatory and have to work off the time for things that, that you, uh, because your good works don't outweigh your bad works. And so, you know, purgatory is not exactly hell, but it certainly is not heaven, right? And, and so, so in part, your salvation is partially up to you. Or if you commit what was called a mortal sin, that mortal sin, reason it's called mortal sin, is it kills the grace that they would said baptism put into you, and therefore you can now lose your salvation. And so now your salvation is at some part dependent on you. Now now imagine the type of insecurity that causes. You know, if my salvation in any way depends on me, you know, I have, I have a natural knack of messing things up. I, I am very good at messing things up. And if I think my salvation in any way depends on my work, my effort, my doing, then I'm toast, then I'm toast. That's, that's not good news. But the Reformation came with the rediscovery of the good news and said, no, your salvation does not depend on you. Your salvation depends on Jesus. He's the author of our faith. We follow him as our trailblazer, but he is also the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who will see you through to the end. And so we read uh, that we follow Jesus in faith, that Jesus uh, endured the pain of the cross. He endured the shame. And he did it, it says, for the joy set before him. Jesus suffered out of joy. Out of what joy? The joy that he might save us, the joy that he might rescue us. And even now it says he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father, there reigning above. And so that leads us to an important question then. And the important question is then, what does it look to live a life of faith? What does it mean to live by faith? You know, you can tell what a person believes by how they live. Belief determines action. And so the writer of Hebrews says, if you believe, it will transform how you live. If you are gonna follow Jesus in faith, you're going to live differently. You're not saved by living differently. Rather, how you live shows what you believe. So what are you going to do differently? He says, "You're going to throw off uh, every weight that's slowing you down and every sin that is tripping you up. So if let's say I'm uh, wanting to run a race, I'm not wearing this. <laughs> not unless it's a Halloween 5K and you're supposed to wear it, bring your costume, right? What's the problem with wearing this on a race? I mean, I trip in Palmer Park without a robe. Can you imagine what would happen to me if I wore this thing? I mean, you'd be tripping up. The, this thing would be flopping around, strangling on the branches. I don't know. what. Everything could get wrong. No, you strip down. You get down, then you wear your, your, your shorts. You get your, your Nikes or whatever they are, and you, you, you get down. And anything that's going to trip you up, anything that's going to slow you down, you take off. And what he's saying is sin is that which trips you up. Sin is that what trips you up. It keeps you from following Jesus in faith. And so the re- we say no to sin because we're saying yes to Jesus. We get rid of those weights. And then it says we run the race with endurance. Do you know what the Greek word for race is here? I find this fascinating. It's the word agony. <laughs> True story. Agony. What's he implying? It's going to take endurance. So why would you strip off those things that you find pleasurable and persevere with agony, which does not sound pleasurable, because there's a prize awaiting. Jesus has something wonderful for us. I think the reason many of us are afraid to follow Jesus in faith is because we, we're afraid of missing out on all the things that the world has for us. We suffer from FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Fear that if we don't uh, grab our best life now, we're going to miss out. But Jesus gives us this promise Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You can't miss out. Jim Elliott gives the logic of faith this way: He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, everybody here is running a race. You're pursuing a prize. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you're pursuing what you believe is going to be the best life for you. The question is: Are you running the right race? Are you pursuing the right prize? I know some of you are skeptical about the Christian faith. You have your doubts. I understand that, and we would love to talk to you. As Steve said, he'll be in the back. Uh, I'll be down here at the front. Love to talk to you about any questions you may have. But the question is: What? are you running for, and is it worth it? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the hope that Jesus gives to us, the hope that those who leave everything behind will ultimately be satisfied in you. And so, Lord, we pray that those of us who put our faith in you would would throw off those sins that entangle us, and we would run with endurance, not because our endurance is what saves, but because we are living based on what we believe, that we believe your promises are true. And so, Lord, enable us, strengthen us to live by faith. Father, I pray for those that are here today, who are here simply to, to investigate the claims of Christ, and maybe they just came because they enjoyed the celebration. We're so thankful that that is you, that you were here. But let me ask you, do you know why you're, why you're living? Do you know what your purpose is? Do you know what prize you're pursuing? Is it worth it? I invite you even now to come give your life to Christ. Simply say to him, Lord, I realize I'm running, but I'm on the wrong course. I'm after the wrong prize, the wrong trophy. What I'm pursuing will never satisfy me. It will never give me life eternal. And so, Jesus, I'm abandoning that course, and I want to follow you. And, Lord, I know that in my own strength I cannot. I cannot persevere, but I trust that you are not only the author. You're not only the founder of our faith but you're the one who's the perfecter, that you'll finish it. So, Lord, I give my life to you, trusting you to finish the work that you've started this day. I thank you, Lord, that I can now follow you because you are the one who saves. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.